0: You can save up to 80% of your hosting costs by switching to Flight Control. Flight Control is a new deployment platform by the creator of Blitz.js that solves the age-old Heroku versus AWS trade-off by bringing the Heroku-style developer experience natively to AWS. The beauty of Flight Control is that it doesn't require any AWS skills, but since it deploys to your AWS account, You have the ability to inspect and tweak anything should the need arise. Flight Control works with any language or framework. It supports servers, static sites, and databases. Sign up at flightcontrol.dev and use the code SOFTWARESOCIAL to get 20% off your first three months. Welcome back to Software Social, Colleen here. I am super excited to bring you a special guest today, Nate Burkapec, who is the leading Rails performance expert. He has his own consultancy. He has written a book. He has a workshop. He's pretty much done all the things. Nate, thank you so much for coming on today.
1: Thanks, Colleen. Yeah. A special guest. Like, is that like an upgrade from the normal guest category? <laughs> the normal is this guest. like oh that's really, really nice.
0: So, Nate, I actually didn't ask you on because I wanted to hear all about your Rails experience. I knew who you were because I'm a Rails developer.
1: I've been tricked. This is a setup.
0: <laughs> it's totally a it's setup.
1: A, yeah, gotcha journalism here, huh?
0: <laughs> While I was, you know, internet stalking you, it's not <laughs> out, I came across your talk Alone Across America.
1: Ah, yeah, yeah.
0: And I loved it.
1: Oh, thank you. Thank you. Yeah. That was a. What is that format called? Pecha Kucha? Um You heard of that?
0: I not until I found your talk, and I was going to lead with that's what it's called, but I can't pronounce it, so no. Yeah,
1: you know, actually, I don't even know like where that comes from. It, it, it was started at, like this Japanese architectural firm, and like Japanese people really love. Um, Coming up with words that are onomatopoeia, so I think that's where that name comes from. It's probably trying to imitate some kind of sound, but I don't know what that would be. Anyway, the format is people give talks, and they're twenty slides, twenty seconds per slide, auto advanced.
0: Oh, wow!
1: So uh, that's exciting. That's like what six and six minutes and forty seconds, or something like that. So that was the format of that particular talk. Which is fun, actually. I really like the auto-advancing slides idea, and it's actually something I've done in conference talks since without saying anything or telling anybody. But mostly of my conference talks since then have been like a 30-second auto-slide advance. Really? Yeah.
0: That seems like a terrible idea.
1: It really keeps you moving. It really keeps <laughs> you on track. Yeah. I like it, actually. I also like just not having stuff in my hands when I'm talking, Yeah. when I'm giving a talk, but... Anyway, I got off track. That's the format.
0: Okay, so for the listeners, it's a short talk. You should look it up. It's linked from his website. But essentially, the story is that when you were nineteen, you were on Shark Tank, and you failed miserably.
1: Sure. I sure.
0: No over exaggerate. Yeah, but- laying
1: it on, Colleen. Jeez. <laughs> I
0: know, right? And so then you bought a motorcycle. Yes. And motorcycled across yep. the country.
1: Yeah, and two times since. But yeah, that first trip was the big one from Tennessee to um, Washington. And it's, it was on this thing called the Transamerica Trail, which is this informal kind of put together route by this guy. And he sells, you know, he basically sells the route online. The route is almost 100%, as much as it can be, gravel and dirt roads. So that's the, the concept is to ride dirt from Tennessee to Washington.
0: So you were, what, 20? So this is... Were you in college then? Were you out of college?
1: No, I was definitely out of college. I think I was probably okay. 22. Okay. The the gap there is I buy a motorcycle after Shark Tank, and then I blow it up, and then two or three years pass, and then I go on this ride <laughs> on a different motorcycle.
0: Oh, okay. Got it. Yeah.
1: Yeah. <laughs> okay. You, you so, kind of leave some of these details out in a six-minute, 40-second talk. You know?
0: Sure. You don't have a lot of time. You know, auto-advancing slides and all. Got to stay on top yeah. of it. So... What struck me about this talk was the focus you on identity. You started saying you were always someone who wanted to be entrepreneurial, and then kind of that failure at Shark Tank kind of changed your identity, and then you got the motorcycle, so you had this new identity. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because I feel like that is so applicable to like literally everyone.
1: Well- this is kind of the lens I had started viewing that experience through after I read, I actually don't know the title of the book, Growth Mindset, I think it's just the name of the book by Carol Dweck. The idea is that some people have this a uh, fixed mindset and other people have growth mindsets. But fixed mindsets are concentrated on identity, on I am this, I am that, and will reject experiences which do not fit that identity. So if you have a fixed mindset and you think you're an entrepreneur, someone tells you you're not in a way that's very difficult to deny, that becomes something that is difficult to integrate into this identity that you've created, right? Because you are an entrepreneur. The, the example she gives is the smart kid, the high achiever kid. Uh, you know, they go through school and they're always told, oh, you're so smart by their parents or by, you know, the school system or whatever. And then they meet a challenge that they finally can't beat, right? You know, got a 1200 on their SAT or something, right? And that experience is not possible to integrate in a fixed mindset. You can't deal with that, right? Like you're a smart kid. So like, you can't get 1200s on SATs. And then that kind of can drive you in a lot of different bad directions Could drive you to cheat or to do something bad like that, like to give up. But that's a big kind of thing that I did a lot when I had a fixed mindset was I would not attempt experiences that I thought I would fail at because i I didn't want to have an experience where that would challenge that identity, right? yeah, um, so I think a lot of my experience since then has been to try to push myself more into a growth mindset, which orients your identity, if anything, around process, so not being someone who is smart but someone who is a hard worker because you always you can control the process right? I could control being somebody who doesn't give up or, you know, works as hard as they can, gives their best all the time, right? That's something that's under my control. So I can kind of safely attach to that in a way that you you can't to uh, fixed mindset. So yeah, I mean, with the motorcycle, like, it was something that I didn't really know <laughs> if I could do or not. I didn't really know if I would go all the way to Washington. It, like, as I said in the talk, like, I probably had like a couple of thousand miles of motorcycle experience before i took off on a ten thousand mile trip completely alone and unsupported
0: seems like a great plan by the way <laughs>
1: yeah yeah i mean i knew there wasn't any real danger like the worst thing that could possibly happen would be like i leave it the bicycle the motorcycle in a ditch and like <laughs> take a plane home That was probably the, right. like or get injured somehow like those are the worst things that could possibly happen so that's actually not that bad <laughs> like if, as far as a, a floor there so like that i think was uh kind of a first step that I was taking towards orienting my mindset different.
0: So, Okay, so this is I have elementary school aged kids. And mm. this is the thing, they're trying mm. to teach us to teach them, right? So when they mm. color a picture, now mm. instead of saying your picture's so beautiful, you're supposed to say stuff like I can see you used a lot of different colors or I can mm-hmm. see you really took time on that. Do you think it works?
1: I don't know. I don't know. My kids only uh 3 months old, so like we'll have to catch up in like <laughs> oh, 10 years and like we'll see. <laughs> we'll see like what happened and what what didn't happen.
0: But I- I feel like, so I've heard so much about growth mindset, right? I've Mm. read Atomic Habits. I haven't read Mm. that book you recommended. I'm Mm. going to. I think a lot of people who are really good in school, and I think for people like us who are starting businesses, being good at school does not correlate with being good at business Mm. necessarily, Mm. It's my opinion. Sure. So I feel like this concept of growth mindset, like you hear a lot about it, but it's really hard to believe it.
1: Mm. Well, I think that, Business is very much not like school <laughs> because yeah. there's nobody laying the track in front of your locomotive, right? There's nobody right. there that's like, "Okay, now you just have to do this, and then as long as you get a 99% on this test, you'll succeed," right? Just keep keep laying that track in front of a kid, and that's how they get from kindergarten to grade 12, right? It's like right. just hitting the track that's laid for them. But like there's nothing like that for anybody you know, that's starting their own business. There's some people that I could tell you like, hey, this thing worked for me. Like, I don't know, it might work for you. But, you know, even if you followed all that advice, it wouldn't work. Everybody has their own specific situation that like no one can lay down that track for you. It does not exist. So yeah, I think being able to teach someone or to have a mindset that allows you to safely explore in that way, like to be able to, you, to, to, to if no one's going to lay down the track for you, you're going to have to try stuff that doesn't work. Right, And that was something I was really bad at, was trying things that might not work or having things not work out and then having to integrate that into, okay, well, what am I going to do better next time or whatever? Like, I couldn't have that experience. The only experience I wanted to have was success because that was what I thought I was, was someone that had success.
0: Right. So did you have any of those, as you were kind of transitioning into this growth mindset and trying new things, did you have any like public... Failures.
1: I mean, the Shark Tank was definitely the one that stuck with me the hardest for sure.
0: Yeah, that's pretty public.
1: Yeah, yeah, it is. I don't know. I mean, I think that's probably the big one. (laughs) I can't think of something else off the top of my head, but I'm sure there is.
0: So, okay, so you did Shark Tank, you did. Personal growth, motorcycling, and slowly over time you establish yourself as an expert, as a rails expert and specifically a performance expert. Talk about the decisions to start a consultancy. Is it just you or is it you and other people?
1: It's always been just me, yeah. So
0: talk about some of those decisions on those paths versus building you know an another monitoring app or something like that like the choices mm. you made when you decided to go independent in that way.
1: Well, I had worked at a couple different startups, like right out of college. And basically, I got a little bit burned out on that in terms of like, I realized that working for someone else in like an employee at a start or very early, very, very early stage, like, you know, five to 10 employees kind of startups just wasn't something that lined up with like what I wanted to do. I didn't want to work. 60, 80 hours a week, I didn't want to, you know, work for half market rate, you know, to maybe get a lottery ticket to a billion dollars. I was like, that doesn't really make sense to me. So I got out of that. And then I don't know, I just sort of fell into contracting initially, because it was like, well, I got to do something to, you know, pay the bills and fill up the time. And I knew a lot of people in New York from the startup scene. So like, I just was okay, hey, Nate, come help us with this, help us with that. I kind of did like hot, you might call it like hot uh, hot seat consulting like just trying warm body that's what i was thinking of warm body consulting for about a year just like you know filling yep. in on rails projects wherever i could and then i just started writing i just ah. started writing about performance actually no i think even before that this is probably this was around the same time this was like the summer of 2015 mike d'alesio who now works at shopify was running gotham ruby conference at the time goruko and he called me like a week before GoRuCo and Mike and I had known each other from the New York City Ruby meetup group. And he was like, one of our talks canceled, can you fill in? <laughs> so like seven to 10 days, I don't remember what it was before wow. Gotham RubyConf, he was like, put together a 15 minute talk. And I was like, all right, I'll do it. <laughs> Cause I'd never done a conference talk before. So I was like, oh my God, <laughs> nice. this is my big shot. Gotham Ruby Conference is a single track conf, So it's like 600 people in the main <laughs> room watching your talk, right?
0: Everyone is coming to your talk. Nice. I
1: I don't really remember like how I was on this track at the time, but I was running on this hot take of Turbolinks is actually good. And Ah. that was an extremely hot take in 2016. Like nobody believed that Turbolinks was a good idea. Everyone was like, DHH, push this into Rails. It's BS. It doesn't work because Ember was really hot at the time. And everyone's like, use Ember. Ember's cool. Don't use Turbolinks. Whatever. And I was like, actually, I think Turbolinks is pretty cool. So I built this to do app in Turbolinks, and I just wanted to show like, hey, if the server response time is good, a Turbolinks app can work almost as fast as a like a server client side Ember powered app or whatever. And uh, the commerce talk was about that. It was about sort of like the performance limits of Turbolinks. How how can you make it as fast as possible? And then I turned it into a blog post, and that blog post DHH retweeted because he was clearly looking. For some like hot Hi. takes to amplify on uh, Turbolinks at that point, right? Because everyone was just like down on Turbolinks at the time. So I'm sure that helped. It was the, the right take for the right retweeter. <laughs> and um, then it, that, that really blew up. So I had tons of people reading that post. And then I just sort of fell into a rhythm of like, okay, every two weeks, I'll start writing about performance stuff. And it, it was ah. partly just what I was interested in at the time. And then yeah. I realized what a huge uptake it was getting. And I was like, okay, this is really hitting a nerve somewhere. And what I realized was, is that there's so much anxiety, more at the time, this is almost hard to remember now, but at the time there was a ton of anxiety around Ruby and Rails performance. It was like, oh my God, Rails doesn't scale (laughs) and I will have to rewrite my application in Scala, in whatever. Because like GitHub and Shopify were not that big in 2016. Like they were just not the behemoths that they are today. And Rails sort of hadn't recovered from losing Twitter to Scala in 2010 or whenever that happened. And so there was like this big, like anxiety I could feel in the community about like, oh my God, it's not fast enough. I have to start writing some other hot language or framework. And uh, I didn't like that. I was like, I don't think this is true. And I like writing Ruby. So like, I'm going to figure out how to make this work. I always hated the mindset of like, I have to switch... I have to switch frameworks or languages that I'm writing because the market says I have to or because it's not fast enough I didn't like that mindset, so I was like, okay, I'm gonna set out to prove this wrong and I just kept writing about that I kept writing about web performance and I realized like this is like a really good market. I really like performance. I really liked writing and talking about it because it's so it's so definite it's so like it either is faster or it isn't it's very quantitative in that way and I really loved like okay, take this thing from three seconds and make it. 300 milliseconds, you know? Um, yeah. So it was a combination of right place, right time, right person, which is, you know, as any success sort sounds in 2020 hindsight, you know?
0: Yep. Always, right? So you started writing and then you had a lot of success writing and then people just started reaching out and like, hey, can you fix this?
1: Yeah, pretty much. Okay. I should go back sometime and like look through all my old client reports and like figure out who the first person was in the last one. That would
0: be fun. yeah.
1: <laughs> but yeah, I started just really getting a lot of cold reach outs and I when I was putting together all these blogs and stuff, I was like, okay, I think this is a good opportunity to create some p- kind of product revenue. So I'll make a course. I'll make a book. And that became the Complete Guide to Rails Performance, which released like nine months after that conference talk that I gave. So it was a nine month period of a lot, a lot, of, a lot of writing.
0: Yeah. What year was that how long ago was that, that the book came out
1: so I think that was the summer of 2015 that I did the conference talk so the complete guide oh. to rails performance came out in March of 2016 oh so okay six years now.
0: and then so then you followed that on with workshops
1: yeah I remember the first one of that I remember the first workshop I ever gave was at Getty Images so I remember Getty Images found me and were like can you come to Madison Wisconsin and give a workshop and I was like hell yeah <laughs> business travel, man. Like this is like cool executive stuff now. So yeah, it's my glorious Madison, Wisconsin setup. And I remember like in retrospect, I had no idea what I was doing with that workshop. It was just like, (laughs) I don't know, it must've been awful to take, but yeah, that was the very first one that must've been the summer of 2016 or something like that. And that workshop basically kind of just kept changing and being revised and edited. And yeah, now I've probably given that workshop live to hundreds of people. And now, now asynchronously, because I sell it online to hundreds more.
0: So have you resumed traveling yet? Post-COVID haven't that? I haven't yet.
1: Haven't yet. My okay. first trip will be to Sin City Ruby in a month. Oh, I'll be there. Awesome. I'll see you there. I'll
0: see you there. <laughs> so I think a lot of our listeners are trying to break free from the nine to five. And a lot of people like that story you just described sounds, you make it sound like it was really easy. (laughs) you're like, I just did this thing and then people are calling me. Was it really easy?
1: Well, I think my memory of that time was like, I didn't really bill for nine months. I didn't have like a lot of billable work while I was writing. Yeah. Yeah. I don't really remember having a lot of like hourly at that time, because I remember, okay. like my last client cut me off, and like their startup blew up, and like he didn't pay the last check. It was like kind of a bad breakup. And uh, kind
0: of that sounds like it, yeah,
1: definitely a bad break I think after that summer, it was like after as I was writing, I don't remember any other clients in there, so I don't know how much billable I was doing at that time. And like writing is a lot. <laughs> writing a lot of work. I'm sure. And probably nine months to write hundred and thirty thousand words. In retrospect, is pretty quick for nonfiction. So. I don't even know if I could have done too much more, but yeah. So I, I guess, you know, I think there's a little bit of luck in the thing that I wanted to write about was the thing that the the community desperately wanted to hear. Right. That didn't have to be true. So right. the fact that that was the way it worked out you know, was important, but I think also like, I think a lot of it is listening. Like, Paying attention to what the community cares about. What are the things that people are, you know, writing uh, blog posts about that sound like they don't have an answer to? You know, like what what are the things that continue to hit the top of the Ruby subreddit or whatever? What are the things that people seem to be struggling with but don't have a clear answer for? And I knew that performance was one of those things, so it was part fortuitous that was something that I wanted to do, but I do think that, especially as I was writing continuously every couple of weeks and posting stuff, like that was partly deliberate of honing a message of, okay, what are the things that people want to hear from me and how do I provide that? One of the things that I've always pushed has been front-end performance, or you might call it full-stack performance, like trying to analyze the performance of a, a Rails application from the perspective of the browser, not from the perspective of the Rails application itself. So, Uh, The reason I do that is because human beings don't just like read raw HTML from a Rails app. The browser has to like turn it into a web page, right? But I've definitely realized people don't want to read that, (laughs) despite the fact that I think it's actually the most important part of performance. I've learned in my message to sort of like lead with these goodies of like, hey, try this one weird setting and you'll make your Rails app 10% faster. And then like... (laughs) feed them the vegetables of like, okay, but you actually need to fix your front-end performance this way or whatever, right? There's a lot that you learn from writing and publishing on a regular schedule because you'll see like what blows up and what doesn't.
0: Yeah, right. So it sounds like really the process of writing helped you start to engage with the community and it helped you start to kind of open that loop with people to see what people wanted which I'm sure you don't want to use the term marketing but it is marketing right Oh no it's, it is 100% Yeah where you can be more specific so is that you're doing the workshops you have the book is that what you're still doing now
1: No so our our first child was born in November <laughs> Congratulations um, that's thank super you. exciting And after I've come back from parental leave here now in February, I am on a more or less 100% time contract with uh, Gusto. So Gusto is my more or less full-time client nowadays. So working on making their payroll experience faster for their customers.
0: So tell us about that decision.
1: Well, basically last year... I mean, I was, the kid was coming (laughs) and I was just thinking like, I love contracting. It's great, but I would like to have more stability in my income. I'd like to have like a little bit more stability of, you know, money coming in. So the other thing is like, especially after doing this for six years now, is that I think my, like, this may sound surprising, but some of my technical skills have just not grown anymore. Basically, 95% 95% of the time when I get brought in on a contract, I am like the most experienced rails developer in the Slack chat. And yeah. that's partly I think because of my clientele and partly just the atmosphere of being brought in on a short-term contract is like, we're paying this guy a lot of money to solve problems in a really short time. So everybody like pay attention to this person. <laughs> and right. it's not really an atmosphere for me to learn, right? Right, uh, yep. So I think in the last couple of years, I'd felt like my technical skills had not really grown as quickly as they used to. So having a long term job or contract, I thought it would be a good opportunity for me to really like dig my teeth into a problem long term and to do it with a, a larger group of people that were as experienced as, as I was, you know, like at a company where there's 20 employees, just like by whatever law of large numbers, there's like one person at my experience level, right? But at Gusto, there's 500 engineers. So there's like 20 people and have those people that have like more experience than I do. Right. So, right. Um, that opportunity to really work closely with people who have tons of experience and differing experience than me was something I was looking for. And also to have, you know, time horizons of like a year to work on a problem and really dig into it, maybe build new tools, like really almost push the boundary of the profession in a way that I can't do on like one week, two week kind of contracts. So I was looking at those, you know, kind of interviewed a lot of places, both for, for normal jobs and other stuff. And Gusto came back to me with saying like, hey, we'll bring you on as a consultant, but you can, you know, do 40 hours a week. And I was like, that's perfect. So that was the setup we ended up with.
0: Okay, so I have a somewhat unrelated question. Mm. But when you go on job interviews, do you still have to do the normal interview process? Or are you just kind of like thinking in the back door?
1: Depends on the depends okay. on the place. I had places where my first conversation was at the CTO and I had places yeah. where I went through a normal interview funnel of like four rounds, okay. you know, people I doing coding challenges with people I'd never met before, that kind of thing. So I did all of that. Wow. Depends, depended on the place.
0: Okay. So. Yeah, that's such an interesting thing because I think as an independent developer, people just give you jobs like based on your public persona or you, what you've yeah. written, especially you, I'm sure. I mean, it happens to me. So I was just wondering like, what that actually looks like when you're like, I want to do this for at least a year. That's interesting.
1: Yeah, I think it's interesting I think the more the company in question like understood my specialty and like my sort of what I can do and bring to the table, the more I was like off of the normal interview track and the more that it was like people kind of thought, "Oh, this is Nate and he's a really famous Ruby developer or whatever." Then I sort of would just get shunted into a normal interview path. My skill set particularly is really weird. It's very specific, <laughs> right? If I was just like a normal working in so at Gusto, right? We have um lots of different areas of where people work. But if I was on a different team, let's say doing we have somebody at, at Gusto right now that's doing a lot of work with pack work. So we're trying to modularize all our Ruby code or whatever. If I was on that team, I would not be nearly as useful. Not even close. <laughs> Right. Yeah. I'm sure I'd be a competent senior staff developer, right? But like that's not even close to the kind of value that I provide doing specifically what I do with the Rails performance, right? Then when I'm doing the thing that I'm good at and like that I am have specialized in, you know, that's where I want to be.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. That absolutely makes sense. So how are you adjusting to life with a newborn and a new job? It's a lot.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, but luckily, our, our newborn is a little angel, <laughs> and she can do no wrong, so, you know. Well, I, I think we got lucky with her. She's just a really good sleeper, so I have not been as sleep-deprived as I expected.
0: That's um, unusual.
1: Yeah, I know. I know. I know we got lucky. So, you know, everything else, like, we can handle, right? If I get sleep, it's like, okay, everything else, yeah. we can figure it out. <laughs> but the sleep, uh, we figured it out now. I think we we've pretty much got that down, so that's... That was the hardest part of that adjustment. And work? Yeah, I think the biggest adjustment for me at Gusto has been like, it's a big app, right? It's a huge app, tons of people. It's like 10 years old. So like yeah, some of the lines of like when you see the blame, it's the CTO <laughs> wrote this 10 years ago, that kind <laughs> yes. of place. You know what I mean? Yeah. And yep. it's very easy to get bogged down in that kind of environment to like really go off on tangents or everything turns into this massive eight degree yak shave, you know, something you thought that was going to take five minutes takes 10 hours. I've got something right now where it's like, I'm shipping rack mini profiler in production and one test out of the fricking 20,000 at at gusto fails (laughs) when I, when I add this one like basically three lines of code and now I got to go figure out what's going on with that. Like it it's like in it this completely random part of the app. It doesn't even make sense. Why is this thing blowing up, right? So any change at that scale of application potentially can, you know, break 0.001% of the app. <laughs> yeah. So it's hard to stay focused in that kind of environment. It's hard not to like just go off and dig to the bottom of every hole to to, to to completely try to understand or fix every single problem in its entirety before you move on to the next thing. But that's not really my job there. My job is to fix particular, make particular pages faster. So, you know, kind of keeping on that track has been an interesting challenge.
0: Yeah. Do you think, so this, you're doing this for a year? Is that how long you committed?
1: I mean, that's how long the contract is. We'll see if they they need me for another year.
0: So you'll just decide, you don't know what you want to do next. If you want to stay, if you want to go, it's too soon to say.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Too soon to say, too soon to know if I would. Yeah. Okay. I mean, I just got started. We're recording we just this. started. Like three, this is like the middle of my third week. So yeah.
0: Oh, okay. You're got it. You just started.
1: With performance work for sure, right? I do think unless the company, which it could, continues to grow basically at a pace where they create problems faster than I fix them, right? But like performance work definitely does have a marginal, marginally decreasing value, right? If I really... Set out and achieve all the things I wanted to achieve in this first year at, at Gusto. It could totally be possible that it's like, hey, like all the really valuable performance problems here are solved. Like, thanks. And that would be fine with me. I'd be totally fine with that. But maybe the company continues to grow and like then the frontier is just pushed. It's like, okay, well, now we've got this other stuff broken. Or, oh, now we need this to work for people, uh, companies that have 10,000 employees. Like, okay, right. well, that's a whole new world, right? So, it would kind of depend on the moment, you know, how much I was able to accomplish and how much the business situation needed me.
0: Yeah. Are you still doing workshops while you're working full-time?
1: I am. Uh Cool.
0: So you've just had quite the interesting career trajectory with the, you know, kind of everything you've done. Are there any things you would have done differently?
1: Hmm. I I don't know. I don't think so. One thing that... I think it worked out really well for me was I started off with a two or three like in-person traditional jobs. I was yeah. a developer or whatever and a small team, but like it was still just a job. And only after that was when I started consulting. And I think some people try to skip that step, right? They want to get out of maybe because the first job is always the hardest Like, you know, with somebody who maybe came out of a boot camp or something and like they try to get that first job, that is 100% the hardest one. And they maybe look at like, oh, I could just go on Elance or whatever and, Mm -hmm. you know, start doing jobs on there. But I'm glad I didn't go that way because I think you can get stuck in a hole of working for kind of these low value clients, not learning that much because you're on your own most of the time. I was really glad that I kind of only launched into freelancing after I had this like extensive personal network and at least a little bit of programming experience and, and resume. So I'm glad I did that that way. I'm very happy I've written as much as I have. I think my writing has been a major factor as to why I've ended up where I have maybe i would have written more <laughs> you could always write more i could always have written more blog posts and written more frequently more regularly there is no marginally decreasing returns on writing for sure i think i could always have produced more content and and that would have been great so i don't know those are the things that come to mind but i don't think i have something that like i would have changed
0: yeah i was listening to the founder of balsamic was on indie hackers a while back but he talked about that Uh, In terms of even starting a SaaS, because he worked at Adobe for like six years before Mm. he started his business. I keep hearing that, and I think that's really good advice to give to people. However, you learn, go get a job if you can first Mm. to help you get on the path of freedom. The path of freedom. I'm going to start calling it that. (laughs) The
1: path of freedom. Yeah, it wasn't even that long for me. Like, it was like two years, I think, maybe the beginning of my career. And also, I think to some extent, like, because it was in New York City and I was going to meetups every week and making like I didn't realize at the time was a network, but it was, you know, that was how I, that was how I met Mike, who gave me the conference talk, which then led to the blog post, right?
0: I love that, by the way. I love those stories.
1: Yeah, I think that is, that is helpful. I think it's uh, definitely more difficult, not impossible, but definitely more difficult to start from a place of hundred uh, percent remote from the start. Yeah.
0: Well, Nate, I think that is a good place to wrap up. Thank you so much for coming on Software Social today. If people want to find out more about you, where can they go?
1: Yeah, um, speedshop.co is my website for my performance consulting and everything that I do is linked from there.
0: Awesome, thanks. Thanks. Huge thanks to all of our listeners who've become software socialites and support our show. Chris from Chipper CI, the daringly handsome Kevin Griffin, and Mike from Gently Used Domains, who has a nice personality. Dave from Recut, Max of Online or Not, Stefan from Talk to Stefan, Brendan Andrade of BrightBits, Team Tuple, Alex Hillman from the Tiny MBA, Rami from Hovercode and Rocket Gems, Jane and Benedict from UserList, Kendall Morgan, Ruben Gomez of Signwell, Corey Haynes of Swipewell, Mike Wade of Crowd Sentry, Nate Ritter of Roomsteals, Anna Mast of SubscribeSense, Jeff Roberts from Outsetta, Justin Jackson, Megamaker, Jack Ellis and Paul Jarvis from Fathom Analytics, Matthew from Appointment Reminder, Andrew Culver at Bullet Train, John Coster, Alex of Corso Systems, Richard from Stunning, Josh the Annoyingly Pragmatic Founder, Ben from ConsentKit, John from Credo and Editor Ninja, Cam Sloan, Michael Copper of Nucy Proposals, Chris from URL Box, Callie of Toslet, Greg Park from Trait Lab, Adam from Rails Autoscale, Lana and Alex from Recapsi, Joe Mazzalotti of RailsDevs.com, Proud Mama from Applenet LLC, Anna from Cradle, Monsef from Ruby on Mac. Steve of BeInclusive, Simon Bennett of Snapshooter Backups, Josh Smith of KeyHero.io, Jesper Christensen of Form Backend, Matthew of Works Cited, Chris of JetBoost.io, Daryl Shannon of Docomatic, Larabels, a community for Larabelle developers underrepresented due to their gender, Brendan from Feederloop, Pascal from Sharpen.page, Lynn Romick from Konbini, Arvid Call, James Sowers from Castaway.fm, Jessica Malnick, Damian Moore of Audio Audit Podcast Checker, Eldon from Nodal Studios, Mitchell Davis from Recruit Kid.